please welcome Ivy Pakoda and Megan Abbott. This is where I always feel so short. <laughs> Fitting for the subject matter. <laughs> <laughs> true, true indeed. I'm so honored to be here tonight with Megan, especially on uh, the night of the women's all-around gymnastics uh, final, which we'll talk about a little later. But um, this is a complete uh, pleasure for me, uh, not least of all because I love this book, but also I love the subject matter, and um, I'm so excited to have the opportunity to talk about it. But first, I think Megan's going to read for us. Yeah, I'm just going to read a couple pages from, from the beginning of the book, um, literally two pages, uh, just a just a sort of a, a general overview for, um, it's, a, it's a book about a, a the parents of a gymnastics prodigy who was somewhat inspired by the last Olympics, uh, 2012. Um, I was particularly fascinated by um, Allie Raisman, who's one of the gymnasts on this year's team, um, and her parents. Some of you may know of her parents because of a certain viral video that again occurred again this week. They did it again. Um, it was so even worse this time. It was worse. <laughs> um, and more charming in some way. But the, the, uh, when her, when Allie was, uh, my personal friend Allie, was <laughs> doing her uneven bars routine um, in 2012 London Olympics, there was this viral footage of her parents, these great Boston parents, watching her perform, and they were wincing every time that she would let go of the bar, and they were sort of fist-pumping every time she would sort of stick the landing, and they you know, they had matching shirts, mm-hmm. and they, they kind of looked a little alike, one of those brother-sister, husband-wife things, and they were yeah. so <laughs> deeply invested in it, and uh, the footage got a strong reaction, both pro and con, and, and in between. You know, I was really struck by this go round where there was a certain joylessness to it. Like they didn't <laughs> yeah. even smile at the end. No, and it there was, was a kind of grim. really hard to watch. I thought <laughs> I, the first time I, I I thought, okay, I get it. I get why they're you know this is really nerve wracking. But there was no sense of excitement when she finished that routine. It's, I don't know what they were watching this time. Yeah, it, it is interesting, because in some ways she's now, she's 21 now, and they call her grandma. She's 22 now. The, 22, yeah, 22, right. yeah, she got older. That's right. So she uh, she's sort of considered the old, the sort of old, Ancient. like, senior lady on the team, and I think the parents have sort of spent their whole, her, her entire, almost her entire lifetime absorbed in this. So um, so they they were the inspiration between uh, behind Katie and, and Eric, who are the parents in this book. Um, uh, who are definitely not the same people, but that kind of the weirdness of what a marriage must be like—that's so triangulated through a child's talent um, and what that what that means for a family. Um, and so the the book is from the point of view of Katie. And so I'm just going to read the, the first few pages of the book, um, chapter one, um, and then and then we'll talk about it. Um, so this is after the for those of you reading along, <laughs> after the uh, the prologue, which Elmore Leonard says you're never supposed to write a prologue. Um, but I did it. Um, but this is after that. Because obviously the prologue shouldn't have been there. <laughs> or else I wouldn't be jumping in. Okay. Um, it had been there from the beginning, maybe even before the beginning. In proud parent moments of which there were too many to count, she and Eric would talk about feeling Devin in, her, in the womb, her body arching and minnowing and promising itself 
himself to them both. Soon it turned to kicking, kicking with such vigor that one night Katie woke up to a popping sound and breathless keeled over in pain. Eric stared helplessly at the way her stomach seemed to spasm with alien horrors. What was inside her, they wondered, her rib poking over her sternum, dislocated while she slept. It was no alien, but it was something extraordinary. It was Devin, a marvel, a girl wonder, a prodigy, a star. Devin kicking her way out, 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 and they had made her, and in some ways she had made them. For years, Katie would touch the spot the rib had poked as if she could still feel the tender lump. It was reassuring somehow. It reminded her that it had always been there, that force in Devon, that fire. Like that line in the poem, the one she'd read in school a lifetime ago, back when life felt so cramped and small, when she never thought anything so grand could ever happen. The force that through the green fuse drives the flower. She's been doing it since she was three? How is that even possible? That's what other people, never gym people, always said, making private judgments, unspoken charges of helicopter parenting, unmet maternal or paternal ambitions, Olympic dreams. No one ever believed Katie and Eric had never cared about sports or even competition. Eric had played high school baseball indifferently. Katie had never been athletic at all, devoting her adolescent to art class and boys and sneaking off to see bands, the vestige of which was a fight like a girl, G-R-R-R-L, tattoo snaking around her left thigh. My three-year-old just wanted to play, they'd say smugly. We just let her play, as if it had ever been a choice or a decision. It started as play, Eric always told people. It started with the trampoline. Then he'd tell them how one long Sunday he'd installed it in the yard, leaning over the auger rented from the hardware store, a pile of chicken wire, empty beer bottles at his feet. The trampoline was the better story, an easier one, but it wasn't the truth, because the trampoline came after the accident, and the accident was how it truly began how that force in her found its fuse. Three-year-old Devin, barefoot, running across the lawn to Daddy, her foot sliding on a grass mound. She stumbled into their idling, rust-eaten lawnmower, her foot so tiny it slipped behind the blade guard, the steel shearing off two toes and a squeak of soft foot flesh. A few feet away, face white with panic, Eric slid to his knees beside her and somehow managed to pluck both toes from the grass. Packed in ice, they looked like pink peas, and Katie held them in her hands as Eric drove with careering ferocity the six miles to the hospital, where doctors tried but failed to reattach them like stringing beads, Devin's face blue and wet. It could have been worse, their pediatrician doctor, the Assyrian, told them later. Sometimes with the riding mowers, the whole foot pops off, and he made an appalling pucker sound with his mouth. But what can we do, Eric asked, even as Dr. Yossarian assured them Devin would be fine. There must be something. So Dr. Yossarian suggested kitty soccer or ice skating or tumbling, something. It'll help with balance, he said. In years to come, this would feel like a moment of shimmering predestiny in the same way everything about Devin's life eventually came to feel mythic within the family. Fate, destiny, retroactivated by a Sears craftsman mower. That fall, Katie drove Devin to the Tumble Angels gym on Old Taylor Road and signed them both up for Mommy and Me Movers and Shakers. At first, she'll be overly cautious, Dr. Saren warned, but try to push her, except it was just the opposite. Within a few weeks, Devin was forward and backward rolling, chin-ups, handstands, cartwheels as accomplished of those girls twice her age. The human rubber band, Katie called her. Supergirl, Eric called her, monkey bar superstar. And in some mysterious way, it was as if the foot were helping her. Frankenfoot, Katie dubbed it, making it their private joke. Show mommy how you work that Frankenfoot. 
Do the O, the other girls would say, cheering as Devon arched her back from a handstand until her tiny bottom touched the top of her head. Every now and then, Eric would lift her up in the air to see if her backbone was really there. Prodigy, Katie whispered in her most private thoughts, but never said aloud. Eric said it. He said it a lot. And so Eric installed the trampoline. Hours, days devoted to making the yard ready for her talent, laying thick mats like dominoes, just as he would eventually do in the basement, hanging a pull-up bar, scraping the concrete bumps off the floor, covering it with panel mats and carpet remnants, wrapping foam around the ceiling posts for Devon. And so gymnastics became the center, the mighty spine of everything for them. Um, so that's the beginning, and everything is great after that. Yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> it all works out. She meddles and all. <laughs> no, no. We'll, we'll get to the out. end of it later, which is one of my favorite things yeah. that we don't know. No, but um, I love that opening. It's so, you know, um, I was a very crappy gymnast um, until I was in eighth grade and grew to five foot eight. And, you know, I had a lot of um, bruises for because equipment doesn't fit when you're that big. But I'm obsessed with gymnastics. I ha- still have my tapes of the 1984 Olympics. And I remember all of those behind the scenes, um, you know, those heartstring stories they do, the hallmark <laughs> stories. And I can just totally see the foot story. You know, yes. I mean, they, if you saw the Olympic swimmer who was on the other day and he has like that concave chest and it's collapsing and they made this whole story about how his parents told him that the doctor said you should go swimming because it will broaden your shoulders so your sternum doesn't collapse and kill you. So I feel like it's exactly in tune with why, you know, greatness. So you have to have the horror. The, he- have- the hero, na- hero <laughs> narrative depends yeah, on this sort of overcoming adversity early on. Yeah, exactly. You know, Simone Biles is amazing, but she was adopted by her grandparents who are now her parents. We have to say that. And they, they love to say adopted. adopted you yeah, know, yeah. Her parents. But that story is, uh, is like... The foundation of that story always is that her mom had addiction problems. You know, there's yep. no Simone Biles without her mom having addiction problems on NBC. <laughs> so, uh, the foot story is amazing jumping off place for this. Yeah, it was it was inspired by one of those behind the scenes thing, which is oh, really? the uh, yes, the ice it's it's ice skater ice skater Lane Zayek, and it, I watched one of those 2020 things from the 80s, and she uh, and her she did have a lawnmower accident, and then her parents t- decided that she should be an ice. Oh, wow. And then on camera on NBC at the Olympics, she took off her shoe and showed her oh my good God. foot. And it was the first time she'd ever showed it. Her boyfriend was there. It was the first time he'd ever seen it. And they decided to put it on NBC. Um, so it was so surreal. And he's sort of like, oh. <laughs> you know, you know. Um, she had been ashamed of it. And now she was felt proud of it because it had made her the skater she was. Um, at least it's covered in the boot when they're competing. I could just yes. see in um, poor Devin's case, like a lot of like close on the beam of like the three toes or whatever. (laughs) I can't imagine how that helps her on the beam, but I mean, maybe it makes her superhuman. Um, So your last three books have dwelt in um, the, I think the woman who reviewed uh, this, a great review in the New Yorker today by a former gymnast, which I think is, congratulations, it's incredible and really well-written and articulate. Um, She called it something sticky something about girl noir and your last three books really dwelt in that you know there's cheerleading and um you know girl hype um what what am i uh girl hysteria hysteria and um you know teenage love but this book comes from the parents perspective and i know we the raismans the crazy raismans (laughs) who are very happy tonight (laughs) spoiler spoiler alert (laughs) um not gonna say why (laughs) um but 
how did that change the um, the writing of this book or the access point? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and it wasn't initially. I didn't know what the point of view was. I, I actually didn't think it would be Devin. I, I was interested in the the idea of parenting, and I explored this a little in the previous book, but only a little in the Fever of that moment when you're a parent and you know your child so well, which is through most of their childhood. You know what every gesture means, what every sort of flicker across their eye means, and I mean what every sort of there's an intonation of their voice and then there comes that moment whether it's at age 9 or 12 or 15 or 20 or or in my case 44 uh, when (laughs) your parents realize they don't know you at all that there's that you have become your own person and you are different and so I I I was sort of that was sort of the interest to me um, that with a prodigy in particular it's thrown into high relief because you're so intensely involved in your child so so it seemed to me this sort of great point of paranoia in a family when eventually the child's going to become their own person and the parents who like the Raismans think they know everything about their child uh, don't and and you realize the stakes of everyone involved in the family. It's interesting because gymnastics is like an odd it's a it's an odd choice to explore that because you're sort of deforming your kid and changing them in front of you like these children are I guess they're in the 20s, so they're young women, some are teenagers, yeah. don't look like they should, or they don't look like the child that was birthed to this family. They have really, really um, become deformed in a way. You know, they're, right, they're defying nature by, you know. And, and that's the parents doing. So they're creating yeah. something they don't recognize. Yes. Yes, I thought that's particularly interesting with a girl, that because like, most gymnasts who are elite gymnasts, as Devin is, is about to be when the book starts, uh, they're they don't have puberty. Uh, you know, they sometimes they get it in their twenties. Late, you know, like they get it like it's a disease, but it kind of is, isn't it? <laughs> um, but what you, do you need so, before nine. So what, yes. what it means to a parent, is like a dad in particular, like you're sort of saying to your daughter, "You're not going to become a woman just yet. We yeah. still got you," uh, yeah. which seems so strange. And you have these girls um, and women who uh, are. They're not exactly girls, and they're not exactly women, but they're not exactly the in-between either because they have these amazing shoulders and right. thighs, but they don't have breasts, and they don't get their period. And right. just sort of, as you say, it sort of doesn't really, it's not really supposed to be that way, as if any puberty was, but... Well, yeah, and there's that great moment in the book where Katie goes to Devon's school, and it's such a breath of fresh air. Not that the book needs a breath of fresh no, air, but, but the is book is, it's in that yeah. gym, and yeah. you can smell the magnesium dust from the chalk, and my least favorite, oh, thank you, my least favorite thing on earth is the, the pit. Yeah, um, like, the yeah. pit in gymnastics, where they, it's a tumbling pit where they practice flips and vaults and dismounts into, so you don't injure, you don't get, um, you know, stress on your joints. You tumble into this giant pit, and it's filled with foam, and it's disgusting. Like, like the foam kind of breaks off, and it gets under your and nails. And retain, so retainers fall down yeah, in there, and sometimes there's mice down there, and all that, you We used to fluff the pit in gymnastics camp, yeah. and there's like this foam that was just <laughs> like fluffer. foam dust. <laughs> yeah. the pit fluffers. <laughs> it's like the little girls always wanted yeah. to do it, so the big kids were over it. But <laughs> Kathy, Katie, Katie yeah. goes to... Yeah. Um, Kathy is a sports parent, I know, yeah. which is why I always well, it's get a big, confused. It's a big sports parent name, yeah, actually. Yeah. One of my least favorite sports parents is Kathy. <laughs> Katie goes to Devon's high school, and she sees her out of context, or rather in context, right. for the first time. And it's an amazing moment where suddenly we are allowed to see Devon for what she is. Right, and how the world she lives in outside of the gym, because, because De- you know, Devon spends, spends you know, 25, 30 hours a week in the gym, and her, her parents are there all the time. And, and then, you know, 
for reasons that occur in the book, she ends up at her school, which she's almost never visited, and the principal doesn't know who she is because <laughs> they're so involved in in the gymnastics. And I just thought it was important to see sort of a, a girl like that at 15 with that kind of body who never goes to any of the school events because she's always at gymnastics, is often gone from school for weeks at a time, and what it must be like for her. Um, and it's sort of, I mean, as a, like a writer, it's sort of meant to show how hard it is for Devin because she has all this pressure in the gym, and in school she's kind of an outcast. She doesn't look like anybody else. She's, you know, she yeah. could sort of take down any of these guys, um, and and she's sort of an, you know, she is the ultimate outsider. Whereas in the gym, she is the the princess. It's sort of she's being bullied and teased too, and yeah. sort of Katie is an odd reaction to that. She feels bad, but sort of not horrified. You know, she doesn't yeah. really get as upset. No, because I don't think she values that world, right? Because she's so yeah. bought into the um, gymnastics. Which, by the way, while I wrote it, I did like I, you know, when I when I write a character, I don't know if you're the same way. I am so in with them. I like whatever Katie says. Like <laughs> she's right. right. Yeah, totally. She's right. She got you it. Know? Like, um, and so she sees that these are foolish, you know, and they are foolish children. You know, uh, they don't appreciate Devin's brilliance. See, I'm, I'm right. well, I've got <laughs> Stockholm too. syndrome with Katie, but um, but she doesn't she doesn't have respect for the outside world because her whole world is the gym too well, which is but not quite as much as the other parents no, and that's the really that's interesting right. thing yeah. about Katie is she I think the fight like a girl tattoo sort of tips you off to the fact that like she feels slightly above them yeah. and she feels superior to the other gym parents who are very much what you would think you yeah. know like potluck suppers and long nails tiger and, like, mom kind yeah, of, yeah sort of like you know probably show up in the, the track suits I, don't yeah. you hate that when I used to coach uh, squash like really elite athletes and like the moms sometimes would come in their clothes like the like their tennis outfits like they could like step <laughs> on in case something went wrong and I could, they'd I be, could like, step in yeah, yeah. they'd be like <laughs> clinging to like the like the door or, you know, so I, but Katie's not like that. And, there, no, right. and she tries to have it both ways that she just, and the, you sort of hint at that in the introduction there was, yeah. they didn't do it, it just happens. But that's not true. Right. I mean, families always have narratives. We all have, our families all tell these stories about the family. There's a family legend that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel okay about the dysfunction in our family. Like, grandma was always like this, you know. Um, but in that, in this case, it's sort of the story that they've told is that really, the trauma, you know, the thing, parents always feel awful when something happens to us, to whether they're ch- child, and so yeah. they feel guilty for it, So, the, but then they can say, well, but it was supposed to be this way, or we never would have taken her gymnastics, and she never would have achieved her destiny. So I think that's the story she tells, and for Katie, because Devin is the star of the gym, I think that really enables her to feel special, too, because she doesn't have to strive like the other parents for attention for the coach. She's got it. But she also doesn't see her behavior and what she's done to no. Devin anywhere the same as what the other parents are doing but it is like she feels superior to them and she, she feels does. she's like the cool mom and she doesn't like she's like I don't engage with that but the the outcome is still the same right it's sort of for her she doesn't she thinks she you know I don't have she's really bought into the story of the family I didn't have to do anything I don't have to push my daughter my daughter pushes herself um, and that she has she, a lot is riding on her believing that right I think that that's sort of the linchpin like that's what's holding this together because if she starts realizing what they've done like 
she can't exist in that world. Like That's she, right. Yeah, because yeah. her husband does is really aware. I think like he. I love that he's like the gym mom. Yeah, he's like the head of the what's it called the pet the the, the boosters. boosters. Yeah, the yeah. boosters. He's like and he's like the, all the women are flirting with him and like yeah. he's the head booster and she's sort of frowned upon by the boosters because she's not quite boosty enough. That's right. And he. I, I was sort of inspired by um, both the tennis dads and the golf dads, oh. which we all know about. That you know, obviously, like with the Williams sisters, I think it's really interesting when the men become involved because somehow it's more special. Yeah. Isn't that nice? Yeah. You know, because the men aren't supposed to be involved in their daughters' right. sports. Um, and so he gets this extra pass and he enjoys it. I think, you know, I think he's sort of pleased by this sort of role he has and he sort of embraces it. It's creepy in tennis. Tennis dads are often a little too involved yes. in like, getting booted out of no, tournaments. No, no. Like, Yelena yeah. Jokic's incestuous yes. father. There's like several <laughs> abusive tennis and, yes. and Eric is not abusive in that way, no. but they're, they're fascinating because it's sort of like they can go further because no one's sort of looking yeah. for them to be a problem except now. now well, there's this sort of like you know you're traveling with your daughter you're in hotel rooms with your daughter she's you know I, I've witnessed this firsthand like there's this age where you can no longer share a hotel room with your I mean right. you can but it starts to be a little strange when your daughter's 15, sure. 16 it yeah. starts to become this other situation um, they're not quite there yet in the Knox family because um, no, right. Devin is supposedly asexual or right. sexless which may or may not be the case right right um, but Katie and the other moms are not. Right. They are like all pent up and ready to go and it's a great scene at a party where with parents behaving badly which is always great but sports parents behaving badly <laughs> yeah. is extra great yes any sports uh, anyone I know who went through any sport that's this, their favorite scene because they know that the parents always in these situations oh. behave badly yeah. that's sort of the, the parent party where they all drink too much oh my and, god yeah and sort of let let loose and they feel like they're sort of kings of king of the world well they're out there's a sense of they're actually home but there's this sense at least when I was traveling with you know my students and you, you know, the coaches also behave badly. The coaches behave really badly, worse than the parents, and there's some overlap there, too. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the hotel lobby at 2 in the morning is filled with drunk parents, passed out parents, drunk yeah. coaches, coaches and parents pairing off. But there's, you're away from home, and that's one of the things yeah. that sports creates is this sense of, you know, other where right. you have license to do that and you do that so well in that a party scene where yeah I think that's sort of one of the tantalizing things that keeps these parents involved too because it does become this sort of Vegas rules all the time yeah, exactly. you know? <laughs> um, which is so you know and, and they feel special in a way that really has nothing to do with anything they've done other than they've bred this child who, who can who can do somersaults or you know uh, and they, they want them to do so much more yeah it's it's sort of like you get to well the, these girls can, they're not even allowed to like have a you know a piece of bread or yeah. you know and the, but the parents are allowed to they're doing the living for them no it's them. a bacchanal for the parents because <laughs> yeah, they can do anything uh, and yet I say this as if I frown on them but I actually thought they were I actually kind of love them too because it's sort of like yeah. they're going for it you know in sort of the noir way they sort of embraced all their libidinal desires and they've got this space where they're allowed to do whatever they want yeah uh, it's funny you said noir way I've read a lot of reviews of the book I've interviewed you about it yeah. for uh, LA Review of Books and I feel like something no one ever talks about is the noir element or the crime at the heart of this book right. it's, maybe it's because the Olympics are on right now and like right now <laughs> yes <laughs> like, this moment yeah. and I feel like that's been completely overshadowed and so 
what, what do you feel about that? Does it seem strange to you? It, I mean, in some ways, it's sort of, I guess it's sort of, you're aware when you're a crime writer that to a certain extent, you're reviewed only as a crime writer, and it's sort of gratifying to have new, you always want new readers to come in that don't necessarily consider themselves a crime writer, or reviewers who don't review crime to find other things in it, and you're always eager for that. Um, and But to me, of course, it's like total noir. Yeah. <laughs> um, and anyone who reads noir, no, it's sort of like, it's desire, it's ambition, it's like screwing up all the time and paying for it, you know, in ways you didn't anticipate, yeah. back against the wall. Um, but I also think that the reason it sort of carries through is that we all feel that way. I think noir exists and is eternal and is practically invented here in Los Angeles is because these are primitive drives that never go away. It's true, and also like the crime at the heart of this book is just sort of like the why is this day different than all other days that like the, the, all this stuff is going on and this just brings it to the surface and sort of it, it's less uh, it's it's less of it's just the engine that's sort of quietly chugging along and then there's this for me I'm like is she going to compete is it going yes. to, what's going to happen to Devin and let's talk about what happens to Devin because yes. it's it's okay to say, you don't know you know sort right. of leave it I have my own opinions but what do you like do you feel that Devin is a successful gym in the after this book, yeah, boy, it's a good question. I, I I sort of like when the book ends, I end my thinking about it, um, and I, I wanted it to be where you don't really know what's going to happen. I'm surprised that people have very strong feelings about what will happen with her, and they feel as if I have answered it, <laughs> but they have opposite opinions of how I've answered it, right. which I kind of like. I mean, to me, she's um, to me her her like she's never going to be able to separate her drive from her parents, and she's kind of accepted that at the end of the book um, and I think that that's in some ways if you're going to do this thing you know whenever I see Simone Biles smile this beautiful smile mm-hmm. and she seems so happy to be out there I think boy what what built that smile um, because she's really really good I mean she's just <laughs> except, extraordinary beyond measure like yeah. no one can believe that like she defies physics and if you can do those things then you know I, uh, who are you to sort of question how how you know how you got there? Who supported you? It seems so special. Well, she's really an exception to the rule. Like her family life seems pretty normal. I think she's trained less uh, arduously. I mean, she trains arduously, but she doesn't do as and much. She came to it later. She, yeah, and, she's yeah. has had a normal teenage childhood. You know, um, I feel like a lot of gymnasts don't smile though, and I feel Devin is yeah, one of those gymnasts. That's right. And which uh, I kind of I'm fascinated yeah. by the enigmatic sort of like determined gaze that you see from a lot of them, yeah. when you have no idea what's going on behind. It's a mask. Of yeah. Sort. I mean, I kind of like that because we're, we, you know, there was that whole like, well, when Nadia got yeah. more athletic and she wasn't doing the little pretty dance with the yeah, pigtails and yeah. smiling all the time, she looked so sour because her life was pretty hard. But um, it but, was yeah. you know, defecting like, and everything, and like the splinters <laughs> yeah. from the beam on her yeah. feet, this whole yeah. stuff. But you know. B- I like that some of them don't smile because they're going against the idea of like girliness and beauty and cutesy yes. pixie stuff. But it really is hard to see, you know, like it's really, it sort of is where you see the crack in the sport where like this isn't great. Like, right. right. And you're sort of conforming to so many sets of ideals. I always think the gymnasts, because we revisit gymnasts, most of us, if it, you know, if we follow it all, it's really only every four years. It's really when the Olympics come and then we're aware that there's gymnastics and we watch it. But it sort of becomes, I think for a lot of us who first started, whether we started watching it when it was Nadia or it was when Shannon Miller or any of the sort of big or Mary Lou Retton or whoever, um, they became our model of girlhood and then every four years it's replaced by a different model. Yeah, exactly. And so it's the way we 
really mark our, our kind of ideas about American girlhood. And yeah. I, I mean, I remember Mary Lou Retton came Me at the too. age where I detested her because I was like a pre-adolescent and I thought she was so perky and uh, I wanted Nadia who was so exotic and like, refused to, you know. I had really mixed feelings about um, Mary Lou Retton. I didn't like her I liked. I wanted her to win, but I didn't yes. like her. I liked that Ekaterina Zabo one. Yeah, she was yeah. great. <laughs> but it's so interesting how we project. So we we don't know anything about these girls, no, or, you know. But we project. So we, we were speculating endlessly about which of the, these gymnasts is Devin. Like you know, like we, we think yeah. we know about them because we you know. Well, they they also present this world. You know, the TV tells you you know the little behind the scenes story, and you yeah. know we know about the Raisins. They're Jewish. They're from Boston. That's odd. You know, yeah. for both of those things for gymnastics. Just yeah. Traditional, not a traditional place for a lot of gymnastics, not traditional religion for a lot of gymnasts. I don't right. think there have been too many Jewish gymnasts. No, um, when she did have a Nagela, yeah, you know, as her yeah. music, it was sort of very, you know. Yeah, that uh, was, yeah, that was different and maybe not all that well um, people didn't love it but you know she did I guess she won the gold on the floor with that it's true yeah, yeah. so it turned out to be a lucky chance. but you know you make I pretend that I know them you know I feel like she you know I, I feel like I know Gabby Douglas really well yeah. though I clearly know nothing about her because she is going through something that I don't understand <laughs> um, but there's someone else in the book who um, sort of uh, you know, we should talk about which is Devin's little brother, who I yeah. think is my favorite character. Oh, he's mine too. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. He, um, he is, and I'm fascinated by this. And I feel like a whole nother book could be written about being the kid who's just normal in a family with their prodigy. Yeah, or in fact, even maybe the special one in a different way that no one would recognize. The siblings of yeah. prodigies was really interesting to me. Um, and uh, I grew up. My brother was a very, very successful baseball player my childhood years and, and eventually abandoned it but I remember what that was like I had no athletic capacity at all I couldn't do anything I, I couldn't throw I, I, I said this uh, last night I could not throw like a girl because I couldn't throw like a girl even I could not throw um, so so. but he was so great and my parents my dad was a coach and you know my parents were sort of bleacher parents and uh, um, it was so exotic to me and, and, and unfathomable and so I was interested in what it would be like to be the odd one out and Drew Who's who's half? He's much younger than Devin, and is like a brainy, bookish kid. And like, what and do you spooky. do? It, yeah, and super spooky. Yeah. Or, yeah, to them at least, yeah. because they're so sort of straight, all you know, yeah. like all American, and uh, and he's just not that kind of kid. So he started off as a, meant to be a minor character, and then he got a bigger and bigger role because I liked him so much. It's <laughs> funny you say your dad was a coach. I always was. I, did he play baseball like growing up, or did he sort of take that role on? <laughs> he took it on. He loved baseball, but he had never played. So because that's the ultimate sport. Parent is when you know you. My dad, you know, I played professional squash, and my dad was the reason I started playing. But he only been playing for one more year than I'd been playing and he could coach me in tournaments because he's older and smarter and stronger. Um, but then I realized he didn't... I, I'm a lot better and I really know my stuff. But it's a weird thing for a parent to do when you think about it. You know, like, to take this role on of yeah. you know a parent and then a teacher and then this advisor in a, something you kind of don't know anything about. And it becomes a little creepy, I think. Well, they're encouraged to do so, though. They were always trying to get parents to coach, at least in my school. You know, it was yeah. sort of like this is to get your parents involved. And then, of course, this was like the 70s and 80s, where it was not, you know, my, I mean, before, I mean, my parents, uh, I was talking with this with Allison last night, my friend Allison, who the book is dedicated to last night, and we say when we were kids, we were like, they eat in the morning on a, on a summer su- Sunday, see you in se- seven hours, and we would go off into the woods and, and do what, I don't know what, I don't know what 
thought we did, but no one cared. And so I think it was originally an idea like parents should be more involved. And now we're right. in the era when parents are too involved, and there's oh sort of God. no winning for parents in this scenario. No, they now they're just so unbelievably involved. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I can't even you know from bribing kids to you know um, wanting to take over for their kids' failures. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's horrifying and upsetting, but there's something really nice in the Olympics now where you see some parents, like, some pure joy, you know? Yeah, yeah. I did like to watch all the different um, reactions of the different parents who are not the Raismans, uh, yeah. except for... I do love the Raismans. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, they look different to other sports parents. They do, and yeah. I, I liked how they sort of seem to be un, unfazed by the attention. <laughs> you know, they're yeah. not going to stop that. yeah. Um, should we ask? Yeah, yeah. Should yeah. we have quite, see if there's any questions? We have so many opinions about gymnastics, <laughs> but, but are there any questions from the audience or about this or noir or, or gymnastics? Or gymnastics or, <laughs> yes. Yeah, the the research. I did. I did speak to a few gymnasts, and I tried to speak to a few gymnast parents, but they they were not spilling. I found I was getting the party line from them a lot. My daughter, I was my daughter loved this from age three. Um, so a lot of the research, I did read a lot of memoirs, and as you probably you probably know, I, they're, they're either like this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me, or the gymnastics is like the demon of all time, and it destroyed my yeah. life. Uh, they tend to fall on either side of those. Um, but the best research um, mode for me was. Um, online forums. There's this thing called Chalk Bucket, which is parents of gymnasts, where they talk about their concerns. And uh, it was the greatest. It was sort of like eavesdropping on on the boosters, on the sort of a bunch of gymnast parents talking about their daughter's leotards and... and uh, Leos. It, 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 yeah, Leos, as they say. There's endless posts, and there's endless posts about if she her breasts are developing, what are we going to do? And, 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 and then also general, like, shaming parents who are too, my daughter's going to Elite and your daughter's not that talented. It was just great. It was sort of like they were being honest with each other, and it was very helpful. And then ultimately, when the book was near finished, I gave it to a few former gymnasts to um, fact checking uh, a lot of the sort of minutia, especially of scoring, which yeah. has changed, so, changed much. so much. So, yeah. there's, so those stages, because um, I did not, I didn't when I started. I, I only had the sort of viewers' perspective. Well, you become like the de facto go person authority in gymnastics these days. No, know? and I. I, it's it's really idiotic. I have to tell you, because I, 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 it's really just. I love Nadia, you know. Um, but but uh, but I was really fascinated with the culture of it, especially, um, and, and and fascinated with how to describe stunts is always really interesting as a writer's task. How to describe something really physical, much like any any action in a mm, book, was very interesting to me. Other questions? Yeah. Hi. I know you. <laughs> what is this fixation you've got, got now about these, these stunted, prepubescent girls? <laughs> well, stunted to you, perhaps. No. <laughs> um, uh, the fascination with stunted, uh, pubescent girls. Um, I think there's a kind of, uh, I think they're the forgotten um stage of light or characters in in most fiction I think they're not taken seriously by the culture they're considered vapid vapid or um, or perky or yeah. uh, bodies to be viewed um, and I think the notion that that uh, 14 15 16 year old girls would have desires and ag- aggressive feelings and ambitions is sort of still so troubling to the culture at large well especially in gymnastics where like they're expected to be so unbelievably tough and resilient and do superhuman things, but then, like, in an NBC the other day, they described the girls waiting the 
they're pretty. It was a, a bad comment. The commentator was like, "They just look like they're hanging out at the mall." You yes, know? Like, uh, oh. I, I mean, I that. know what he's saying. Yeah. They look casual and they didn't look stressed out. But like, that's what you think teenage girls are doing with these. Right, yeah. and and they're not supposed to own that they want this or that they are competing against each other because uh, they sort of have to do these sort of artificial hugs. The hate. Someone on Twitter oh, yeah. to call it the hate hug, and yeah. I, I love that because it's sort of like they do like each other, I'm sure, but they're also competing against each other ultimately. Absolutely. And so, like, but no one wants to admit that so they have to pretend that they love each other you know because girls are supposed to be happy and only want to text and talk about boys or whatever so to me they're just they're they're Walter Huff and double indemnity mm-hmm. they're like they want things they want them badly and no one wants to mm-hmm. admit it or look at it and it makes everybody so uncomfortable so to me it's sort of the pure heart of noir and also you know the thing that no one wants to look at right yeah. With um, the end of everything. Yeah. That sort of set that that teenage girl thing in course, and they they wanted you know they almost didn't know what they wanted. Right. And then so and as a parent of a girl who sort of aged along with your box. Mm-hmm. Uh oh, sorry. <laughs> Be careful. Okay. Fever was like there was a moment in the fever where I realized you know so much about my then like seven. Yeah, yeah. But the uh, so how did how did you go from the end of everything mm-hmm. to these, you know, then you have, you Yeah, yeah, I guess it was sort of, yeah, the end of everything was the first book I wrote about, and it's about 13-year-old girl's point of view. Really yeah. In a, in a, yeah, really. Yeah, and that's the book I get the most angry emails about, sales to our time, by the way, because uh, I think they're so young in that book, but the idea that 13-year-old boys, we expect to have desires, uh, sexual desires, but 13-year-old girls, we don't, we don't want to think about it and uh, this is what at least all the parents who emailed me <laughs> about that book um, um, but uh, yeah but that was the one and I, I realized when I wrote it how this was this sort of weirdly taboo category you know this sort of whole world where any of us who if we were a 13 year old girl if we've ever met one we know this but no one wanted to sort of write about it and then it was sort of a matter of putting them in different environments and in this case from the point of view of a parent so sort of like circling around this and trying to sort of explore it Sort of yeah, sure. Are there other books like The Virgin Suicides or something that resonated with you or that you said mm, didn't like No, I mean, The Virgin Suicides definitely did. Uh, uh, and, and, and Identities is from the same suburb of Detroit I am, but that's a book that's from the point of view of the boys, uh, and I love it. And he's, they, But the girls are very exotic in it because it's a, the group of boys who look at these girls, the sisters. Um, and, uh, and I love that book, but it's not about the girls. It's about how boys look at girls, which is... Um, Almost all books are about, you know. <laughs> um, so it was sort of like turning that seemed really interesting to me, uh, and it's been exciting the last few years, including your your work, Ivy, that, to see like let's go into the dark heart of uh, of the girl. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what did? How about for you? I mean. Why did I do it? Yeah. Or, you know, I just feel that like girl friendship dynamics are endlessly fascinating to me and much more complicated than people think. Yeah. And you know, there, there's never the good. You know, you're you're different, a different person to different. You're a different friend to different people. You yeah. know, sometimes you're the fast friend and sometimes yes. you're the quiet. You know, I was both of those people, and I wanted to. Some sometimes I wanted to go really fast and like do bad things, and sometimes I wanted to stay home and like make prank phone calls and play yeah. pretend. And I had yeah. some other friend who was doing stuff in the back of cars with boys. I was like, yeah. oh my god! Um, but that's sort of what I wanted to explore. So, yeah, yeah, and the sort of notion that was we all sort of know that fem- that femininity is sort of a masquerade, and, and girl, what girls learn at age 13, 14 is how to put on different masks, uh, and that's sort of uh, you know a huge part. 
of it. Um, and, and they have to because they're going, you know, that's the only way they can hide these feelings they're not supposed to have. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, I noticed in a lot of your books you talk about like toxic masculinity in the form of like suburban mm-hmm. dads and boys and how in the fever it was kind of like they were victims of it. Like mm-hmm. Eli especially. Right, his yeah. His body was seen as something that could corrupt so many right especially but how when you will know me the the men were kind of corruptors and the the perpetrators of this toxic masculinity and i was wondering that's on purpose the toxic mess. That's fascinating. The question was about uh, the the toxic masculinity in my books, which, which, uh, and, and particularly, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's so funny. So the fever is sort of the. There's a, a teenage boy in it who's sort of so so attractive, you know. And there's one of those, and he will know me too. I like teenage boys. Um, <laughs> um, no, but uh, I mean, I think, I, and it's such a fascinating question because, of course, one of the reasons I started writing was I was fascinated with hard boiled masculinity, the sort of classic noir masculinity. And I think I think I guess I probably to me, but I, I, I'm really intrigued by how you, how you view it too is uh, I can I, I probably there's a toxic femininity in the books too and that's what I'm interested in too. That sort of desire in the classic noir way is always dangerous and that's why we keep having it. We love that um, and we're drawn to it. And that that kind of when you're especially when you're a teenager, it feels like the stakes are enormously high when you you want someone and they don't want you or you want someone they wanted you once and they don't want you again and sort of like it's all thrown into high relief um, and that's sort of something you're supposed to grow out of but but uh, but no one really does they just learn how to hide it um, so I guess it's sort of the, it's sort of the tell that I never I never really let noir go because you're supposed to eventually adjust to adult life and sort of control your desires and uh, but I don't think we really do, um, or we don't all do it, or we do it sometimes and not other times. Um, so I think, I mean, I've been accused also of having my, the men be too nice in my books, which I think is fascinating. And I think I'd only say that because the, gr- the girls are, you know, often do the negative acts in my books. Uh, so I think it's just a more of a notion of maybe it's toxic desire. Um, um, and it's sort of like, I guess I need to talk to my shrink about it. <laughs> but it's a great question. I, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I, I guess I'm wrestling with how to answer it because uh, I'm not really aware of it in the way that you are as a reader. And it was any, I don't know. I, I, well, I think, especially, and you know, Dare Me and uh, um, this book, yes, yes. <laughs> You Will Know Me. Yes. Oh, sorry, the titles are short. I guess also in The Fever, too, there's this paranoia about girls being corrupted yeah. because you know right that men they, would be the yeah. but they can't be like yeah. that would ruin this these girls and also in dare me because they're cheerleaders they're they're expected to be doing this and they're you know so the men, the men po- po- they pose a real threat at least in you'll know me like you know that's a that's a big no-no yeah they're a big no-no here you know yeah for- it's and it and i and and i to me it, that it's not does not feel that way which is so telling because of course no writer you don't really know what you're doing to me the men are very sweet and in, in my books and and the women are so oh, they, i don't know oh the men are sweet but the yeah. threat of like masculine no, corruption right. is like really right. overwhelming and to be um to adopt masculine characteristics as a woman is particularly toxic which is probably would be the extension of what you're saying if you ha- if you want things like a man wants things then you're really going to be in trouble I, I i'm fascinated by that that's a uh, yeah i have to think more about it but it's a great question 
Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I did. I need to think that through. <laughs> um, any other questions? Yeah. Mother daughter. Oh, hey. <laughs> I wanted to ask if any of your books were in development as film? Uh, I have, uh, yes. Um, uh, some of my earlier books are in development as film. Uh, 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 from my first book, Die a Little and Queenpin. Um, um, and then Dare Me and The Fever are both in development for TV right now. Um, uh, Dare Me is with HBO and The Fever is with TNT. Um, so so we'll see, you know, uh, we'll see where where it goes um, but you know you know how development is sort of you never know but um, but I'm attached to to write the pilot for both of those so so I have some role and then we'll see <laughs> knocking wood <laughs> I was really surprised to see that Allie um, Allie Raisman yeah done a nude photo shoot well it, yeah it was a body issue you mean the body issue of Sports Illustrated oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, uh, uh, why were you surprised? I'm just. Well, I was just wondering what her parents. But she's 22. I know, but still. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, really it's very prestigious to do the body issue. It's it considered as an yeah. athlete because you're showing your mus- musculature. Yeah. And uh, uh, and I, th- I think they were thrilled, but I have no doubt, actually, that they, they were, were thrilled by it. <laughs> My best friend, uh, the Braves. They were fist popping. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but I think it, it, it's interesting because I was talking with someone uh, a couple months ago at Vogue about this, and, and I was possibly going to write for a piece for them. Um, and they really is that they had run in the 80s they had run no pictures of any gymnast they did not consider the gymnast body worthy of vogue and I think one of the exciting things in the last few years particularly with with Serena Williams and with uh, you know uh, that this body is now considered beautiful and then and the muscle female muscle is considered beautiful in a way mm-hmm. it never was before so I think probably they would view it through that lens this is an athlete's well also body. I mean from another totally craven point that I'm reading into the Raisman's yes, backstory we, is we, that we, we know Allie has been completely overshadowed by gymnasts her entire career. You know, yeah. Gabby Douglas and now Simone, and I feel that her parents being true gym parents and pushing her hard would be thrilled. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, I have to say, um, this trend to showing female athletic bodies is perhaps one of the most important things that has come out of Serena Williams' tennis career. Um, yeah. She has changed that, and... Um, we're not going to go into this because I have a lot to say, but it has been an amazing transformation about how uh, women athletes are perceived, and uh, it couldn't be better. And it's, it's just fantastic. And I think, you know, the Sports Illustrated body issue, and they all do another. New York Magazine does one, and then yeah, they ESPN do. Does one. And they've done a lot with yeah. these gymnasts. Yeah, it's beautiful. And Vogue did um, some uh, Vogue, yeah. Yeah, Teen Vogue, Teen Vogue, my favorite publication. Yeah. <laughs> But also, there's a, 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 a diversity, a, a racial and ethnic diversity on, in the gymnastics now that yeah. you never saw before. And I think that and an age diversity, yeah, because um, Oksana Chichikova is 41 years old. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It hasn't been mentioned by NBC. No, no. I, there's been a lot of criticism of their coverage, which is like a whole other thing that's interesting. Yeah, that's um, pretty bad. But, but, but. but one thing that has been a little interesting is in the coverage, at least if you watch the live stream, is that what they are cutting out of the main um, coverage is that it, the Americans are in a class by themselves, but there are women with different body types doing yeah. gymnastics, and that's something I've never seen before. Like The women on the British team aren't exactly trim. Right. And that's unusual for a gymnast body, and their commentators aren't saying anything about it. Right. And it's amazing what they can do. Yeah. You know, with you know, they're big, and they're not they're not 
I'm not saying they're <laughs> hugely overweight, but they're very big girls. And it's fascinating to see that. And that's never really been televised before because we only ever focus on this tiny, right. tiny sliver of it. Yeah. Yeah. A, yeah. No, and I think it just shows how we, how much we see about the culture when we look at gymnastics every four years, and that it's not, you know, some, you know, sometimes just gymnastics is not just gymnastics. No. I guess is the, you know, and I won't do any gymnastic puns because after three weeks of book tour, I've done them all. <laughs> but, uh, but th- thank you all so much, and I'd be happy to answer any more questions if anyone wants to come up. Uh, this has been great, and thank you so thank much. You. Thank Ivy you. Thank you so Rivers. much. It's so much pleasure. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.